The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. When I originally preached this sermon at youth camp in 2017, uh, I invited two students to come stand at the front. They were both athletic. One was George and one was Sebastian. They were both tough guys. They were both some of the older boys. They were probably about equal in strength and agility. And I invited them both to come forward and stand at the front. And I asked them both to just stand next to me. And as I was reading Philippians chapter 4 verse 1, I walked over to Sebastian and I just shoved him pretty hard. And uh, he went flying and fell to the ground. I had given him a heads up that this was coming, so it wasn't super aggressive. Um, but I told him to, you know, not, not act like he was expecting anything. And then I said, okay, George, I want you to stand firm. And I walked over to him, and as hard as I could, I tried to push him over. I actually tried, and by the end of it, I was huffing and puffing, and he's, you know, stocky and tough, and he's just standing, standing firm, not moving, not budging at all. The word that Paul is using here is very important in verse 1. He says this military term, stand firm. If you've ever seen a war movie, like a movie from ancient Rome, you've probably seen depictions of a shield wall. You know what I'm talking about, where they have this tall shield and they would stand next to one another and the shields would basically form an entire seven to eight foot tall wall, basically protecting them from shields. And when they had the shorter shields, like the five to six foot tall shields, they would actually put a second wall on top so that there were a shield wall in front and above them. When they would put up these things, there was actually a phrase that they would yell, and we translate it into English for most movies. You would hear them say, hold the line or hold your ground. That's quite literally what Paul is telling them to do here. This little phrase, stand firm, is a military term. Hold your ground. Stand firm. Hold that line. Theologian F.B. Meyer once said, In life as in war, it is not the man that makes brilliant dashes, but he who can pursue a plan of strategy week after week that succeeds. In Paul's letter, he's not talking about just making one brilliant step of growth. He's talking about standing firm continuously. He's talking about this in such a way that this is central to his message to the Philippians. Stand firm, and he tells them to stand firm in this way. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is this idea of standing firm. It's not just in Philippians. It is common throughout all of the writings of Paul. He tells the Corinthians to be steadfast and immovable in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To the Ephesian, Ephesian church, he wrote about putting on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can stand firm. That whole passage is really about standing firm, using the tools that God has given to us. And in preparation for this sermon, I was actually able to find 26 direct New Testament commands that tell you to either stand firm or be steadfast. And the original Greek word is identical. But what does that look like? Practically speaking, how do you do that in your life? What does it really mean to dig in your heels and to square up like George and not be like Sebastian? 
What are the practical everyday things that you need to do so that you can be prepared for the unexpected attacks that come from the world and the flesh and the devil or the unexpected attacks that come from fellow church members or your own circumstances? Notice verse one says, stand firm thus in the Lord. What we're doing today, learning from God's word, teaches us that there is a particular manner in which Paul intends for them to stand firm. It is this way, stand firm in this way. So these, what we are about to see, are two sets of instructions about how to stand firm. Our text this morning deals with real issues. These are real everyday life issues that Christians experience. And it shows us clearly that our lives are not to be lived like we have the Christian spiritual churchy side of us. And then on the other hand, we have this normal human being everyday stuff like our friendships and our work uh, place and our hobbies. Those things are not designed to be two, but designed to all be brought under the umbrella of what it looks like to follow Christ. All of that, Every aspect of your life comes under the lordship of Jesus when you become a Christian. But it's easy for us to act like there are certain reasons why parts of our lives don't look like Christ. And that's what we're going to be considering now, this morning. So by the word of the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to learn how to stand firm in the mundane, everyday challenges of life. This sermon is primarily aimed at Christians here in the room. And that is because the text is primarily directed at Christians in the room. But for those who are not believers, I encourage you to listen carefully to the gospel that will be interwoven throughout every single part of this message. We have two simple points this morning. It's a short outline, but with each of these two points, there will be three application points associated with them. Point number one, be at peace with one another. Point number two, be at peace with your circumstances. Point number one, Be at peace with one another. Please follow along as I read verses two through three. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is telling the whole church in Philippi that it is important that these two ladies get along. So far in this book, there have been a few hints that there's some disunity. Primarily, he talks about and and extols the unity of the church, but consider a couple times when he mentions there might not be a perfect unity within the body. He says in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Why is he telling them to do that? Because it seems like he knows they're not all doing that. This is also probably what Paul is getting at in chapter two, verse two, when he says, complete my joy, meaning there's something lacking in my joy right now, but complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one one mind. Why does he say this to them? Because he is trying to get across, there's something wrong here. Not everything is right in River City. There's something that needs to be taken care of. You guys get along. Now, maybe there were other conflicts in the church that were causing them not to be unified, but it seems clear that this is the big one. This is the major cause for disunity. So what do we know about these two ladies? Let's start at the bottom and let's work our way up. First of all, we know that their names are in the book of life. This is significant. 
because Paul is convinced that they are saved and he is not calling them out for heresy. He is not saying that they should be removed from the church. He has actually written, this is, this is significant. It's not just like one of the elders here believing that somebody is saved. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these women, their names are in the Lamb's book of life. They will be with God forever in heaven. These are saved people. He has full confidence. They are Christians. Therefore, these women are saved. Secondly, they're probably pretty mature women in the faith. In many aspects of the faith, we know they have labored side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel, as he says. This is the second military term, by the way, that's being used by Paul. The word labored is sometimes translated as striving or struggling with me. It's a word from where we get our modern word athlete. It means that you fight alongside one another. You fight for one another and with one another. In fact, in the Roman army, which Paul was probably referencing here, even though you were standing in the ranks with many people, two individuals would be partnered up. The person that would guard you with their shield while you fight, and then you swap and they hold the shield while the other fights. They would do this intentionally so that you would not become exhausted. You would do this so that you could continue to fight over and over and over, taking a break with one arm and then going back at it with the other. Paul is saying these two women were like that for him. They were strong fighters. They came alongside him in the gospel so that they might share with their community about Christ. But their downfall was that these two women could not get along with one another. What are they fighting about? Well, the short answer is we don't know, but there are some things that we can deduce. First of all, we know that this was not a doctrinal dispute because if it was, Paul would have clarified the issue. Many of Paul's letters were written to correct false teachings or to correct doctrinal disputes within the body. If there was a theological problem, don't you think that the greatest theologian in history would weigh in on that? But he doesn't. The fact that Paul is silent about the cause of division reveals that this is not a doctrinal issue. This is not a theological issue. This is a personal issue between these ladies. Secondly, we know that whatever it was that, that caused this division was widespread and known throughout the church. Remember that these kinds of letters that Paul would write, these epistles that were sent to the congregations were to be read publicly, meaning somebody would come forward and they would say, everyone, we've received a letter from the apostle Paul and they would begin to read it publicly. And can you imagine being Yodia and Syntyche sitting out there in the crowd and then all of a sudden hearing your name read aloud? I entreat you, Yodia. I entreat you, Syntyche. Get along with one another. Now, don't you think that if Paul was writing this to the church and he was expecting this to be read publicly, that he would have left their names out if the whole church was unaware of this situation? It would have been gossip if he would have just shared publicly all of the details of what was going on here. No, it seems that everybody already knew this was a, a sharp divide within these ladies. So what does this ancient dispute between these two women mean for you and mean for me? Let me ask you, is there anyone with whom you have a dispute? Do you have some kind of personal beef between you and somebody else here in the church? Is there somebody you just don't really like, you don't want to sit next to on a Sunday morning, and so you have built up barriers in your heart, or you're pushing someone away for one reason or another? When World War I broke out, 
the war ministry in London sent a coded message to the British outposts in a very remote part of Africa. And the secret message that they sent said, quote, war has been declared, arrest all enemy aliens in your district. Soon after the war ministry received this message, uh, they sent something back and it said, um, quote, we have arrested 10 Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please tell us immediately with whom we are at war. They have no idea who the war has been declared with, so let's just arrest everybody. Sometimes we forget with whom we're at war. We forget that we are not fighting a battle of flesh and blood. We look around us and we start to battle with someone who is different than us or who has different tastes than us or who has different preferences than us. And we begin this war in the church that was never intended to occur. One of the greatest evidences of spiritual growth in our church has been the joyful unity that is always evident at our gatherings. But I want you to beware. I want you to watch out because this church at Philippi was a good church. This church at Philippi was a healthy church. Paul did not have to write a strong letter of rebuke to them because they were solid. In fact, of all of the letters that Paul writes to churches, this one has the least amount of correction. But just like a weed can grow through the concrete, so can dissension grow up in the church if it's not kept in check. And just like weeds, arguments and divisions naturally pop up everywhere. The only human society where there is no conflict is the graveyard. It's the natural result of when you have multiple sinners living in close proximity to one another. But God commands us that we are to be at peace with one another. Now you might be wondering, why does Paul give so much attention to this? Why does he actually, I mean, he just spent chapter two giving some of the highest Christology in the Bible. It is the most significant thing that he probably ever declared in this book. Chapter two about how Jesus came and what it looked like that he made himself a servant, even to the point of death. But now why does he spend so much time focusing on this? And the answer is simple because division kills churches. The worst attacks that I have ever seen come against churches are not from the outside, but from the inside. And just like we see in this passage, the division rarely motiv- is rarely motivated by doctrine. Sometimes it is. And sometimes churches should divide over doctrine. But rather it is rooted in someone saying, I want my way, or I'm right, everyone else is dead wrong. And then they begin to dig in their heels. The worst divisions that I've ever seen have come from people who know the gospel very well, They have it in their mind. They know their their doctrine backwards and forwards. They know their Bible well. They have tons of scripture memorized, but they are so committed to their own way that they don't care who they hurt. They don't care what's going on on the periphery. They just want to be perceived as victorious. Yep, he was right. But notice, Paul is not merely saying here, all right, just suck it up. Just get along. Just move past it. Don't worry that it ever happened. Just ignore that. Just set it in the corner and everyone continue doing your business. No, he's telling them to actively agree in the Lord. What does that mean? I think it means something like this. If you're in disagreement with someone who is in Christ, then you need to come to the point of saying the most most important thing is that Christ is glorified in us. So whatever little squabble that we have between us can never elevate to the point that it's going to compromise the gospel, and then it's never going to rise to the level of compromising the unity of the church. So together, you determine to set your eyes on Christ 
and all of those personal issues begin to fade. Application number one, be peaceable. Do not cause divisions. These women, women were strong fellow workers with Paul, but they became tools in the hands of the devil because of their own pride. You can be peaceable and you can be certain to be peaceable by making sure that you understand the difference between your convictions and your opinions. You need to understand that the difference between right and wrong and your preference of like and dislike, those are not the same thing. You can be peaceable by being quick to forgive. You can be peaceable by praying for the other person with genuine love and praying for yourself with genuine humility. Seek peace and pursue it. If you are currently in conflict with someone, I don't know of any conflicts out there, but if you are, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Go to that person and in love resolve that issue in the Lord, or as Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Application number two, be a peacemaker. Maybe you're not part of a conflict, but you know of one. Maybe you're on the outside of the fray and you're looking in and you see what's going on. And if that is the case, you should be like this man or woman who he calls true companion. We don't know who this is. He just says, listen, true companion, I want you, yes, you, I ask also, true companion, help these women to get along. Help others to get along. Be a peacemaker. If someone brings up gossip in front of you, or conflict, bring, they bring it to your doorstep, what do you do with it? You kill it. Do not spread it. Do not be the cause of further disunity. Instead, lovingly help to bring resolution by pointing the offended parties to the gospel so that they might agree in the Lord. For just as Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Application number three, examine yourself. Maybe you are a contentious person. Maybe you are the kind of person who is continually at the center of arguments and disagreements and disunity. This is not just a social issue. This is not just social unawareness. This is a, not just even a character flaw. This is a gospel issue. Strife and disunity and dissension are sneaky, wicked ways for the church to crumble beneath your feet. God is so serious about these sins that Paul writes these words in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. If you examine yourself and you come to the realization that you are constantly at the center of drama, you realize that you always cause quarrels and strife and disunity, then perhaps you should ask yourself if you really genuinely know Christ Jesus at all. Perhaps you fit into the description of being warped and sinful and self-condemned. If that is you, call out to the Lord and repent. He is gracious and merciful, and he accepts all who bow the knee at the cross. If you are not saved, he is faithful to save all who call on his name. And if you are saved, and you find yourself at the center of all sorts of contention in your life, run from that sin. Run from it and never look back for the sake of the name of our God and our King Jesus Christ. That is one of the worst ways to drag his name through the mud. So now we come to our second point about how to stand firm. We've always cons already considered how to stand in peace with other people. Now we ask the question, how to be inwardly at peace with your circumstances. Look again at the word of God, starting in Philippians chapter four, verse four. 
It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There are three commands here in these four short verses. But commands two and three really hang on the first one. So if you don't get the first one right, then you have no hope of getting the others correct. For this reason, we're going to spend a good amount of time here on that first command, and then we'll see how the other ones affect it later on. The first command is, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Does anybody know that song? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I'm not going to sing it for you for the same reason that Gideon did not sing for you earlier. Um, we don't want your ears to be bleeding. But that's a song taken straight from Scripture, that we are called to rejoice in the Lord always. What does it mean to rejoice? According to one Bible dictionary, it says the word literally means a lifestyle of joy that emanates from an active choice of our will, regardless of whether confronted with joyful or adverse circumstances and or people. You can have joy regardless of what is happening in your life. Your demeanor, your expression, your inward emotion should be radically placed underneath of what you know to be true about Christ. You submit it to what you know to be true in the gospel. Do you realize that your mind is a battlefield for sin? And your emotions are no excuse for lacking joy. Joylessness is a sin. It boils down to the fact that you are more concerned about temporal daily stuff that doesn't really matter than you are about who Christ is and what he has done for you. We've been made part of the family of God, yet we pout like we're orphans. We've been shown that God is working in all things for his glory and for our good, yet we complain when things don't go the way that we want. We've been given the gift of union with Christ, yet we whine when we don't get temporal, earthly, unnecessary stuff. You open all your presents, and the one thing you really wanted isn't there. This sin is so common and so abundant that we fail to even realize that it's a sin. The Bible commands us, rejoice. And you might ask, how can God tell me to have joy? How can he do that? How can he command me to feel a particular way? I can't just conjure up joy. No, you're right. You can't just conjure it up. God isn't saying to do that. He has commanded us to rejoice in something specific in him. Rejoice in the Lord. The world can only rejoice in their circumstances. That's why they can't have joy. When we are saved, what we are doing is giving all of our circumstances to God and saying, it doesn't matter what happens to me, I have joy in you. So let me ask you the question, what's important to you? What is really important to you? Because that's what's going to cause you to reach the highs of rejoicing or the lows of discouragement. Take sports, for example. If the most important thing in the world to you is your favorite team, then you're going to be rejoicing when you win, but devastated when your team loses. That's why Mets fans are always miserable, right? <laughs> Because you live and die with the Mets, right? Fill in the blank, though, with whatever it is that you love, 
Whatever that thing is that you rejoice in, it's going to let you down. Even if it's something great, like your job or your spouse or your children, they're going to fail you. They will not always be perfect. And when that happens, you are now devastated. And you don't even know how to experience joy at all. But as Christians, this should not be so because our joy is not based on temporal things. It is not based on things that can change. It is based on our God who is who he is and is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our joy is rooted in who God is and also in what God has already accomplished. Christians are too often looked at as people who have no fun and who have no joy. The world, you know, what's funny about that is when uh, the world begins to have their life around them crumble, that's when I've experienced them coming to me and saying, how is it that you have a smile right now? That's when they really see the rubber meet the road and they realize that their joy is quicksand and your joy is a, a solid rock. We of all people have reason for joy. Paul has simply said, rejoice in the Lord. So let me give you a few reminders about what we have to rejoice in. Rejoice that the Lord is sovereign. Rejoice that there is nothing in the universe that is outside of his control. Rejoice that everything that has ever existed is operating within God's design and that there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that can ever surprise him or overwhelm him or undermine him. We have reason to rejoice. But not only is God sovereign, he is also good and merciful and loving and he cares for his people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Rejoice in that, Lord. And how did we become his people? Because God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God did not give us what we deserved, but he took our sin and he took our shame on himself and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he took my doubt and my pride and my lust and my lies and, my can and he canceled the record of debt that stood against me with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, rejoice in the Lord always. And Jesus did not take our sins alone. He also gave us peace with God by giving us his own righteousness. He gave us grace and gave us new life. He gave us freedom from sin. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, again, I say, rejoice. I could just go on and on and on, listing truths about God, listing truths about what he has done, but I think you get the point. We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord for a good reason. It is not just God's declaration that we must transform our emotions for no reason. He is saying, set your attention on the fixed realities of the gospel and rejoice. God desires our joy. Isn't that good news? God does not want his children to be miserable. He wants us to delight in the one thing that satisfies our souls. That's a good God. Every other source of joy is going to dry up. It's going to leave you unsatisfied. It's going to leave you wanting more. They, in fact, that's why everything is created the way that it is created. It satisfies temporarily and momentarily, but before long, that's gone. In fact, I was reading an article recently about this, you know, the, the Christmas opening package season, and it was saying that the time when your enjoyment of a product peaks is when you open the box. Not when you first use it, but when you first see it. And after that, everything is downhill. Every source of joy is going to leave you unsatisfied. They're going to promise you a lot and give you a little. 
The only true satisfying source of joy is the unending love of God that he has poured out on us in his son, Jesus Christ. Application number four, rejoice in the Lord. Look, look at me for just a moment. I want your eyes up here for just a moment. Do you want to know how to stand firm? Remember, that's the command Paul gives you. Stand firm. Do you want to know how to do that? Do you want to know how to dig in your heels and get into your stance? It is by rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in his love and rejoice in the gospel, which gives you strength for every circumstance. You can do it if you see that Christ is with you. If you know that he is the one standing with you, holding that shield on your side, then you know you can accomplish whatever he has put you in. Our next command comes from verse five, which says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness here is really interesting as a word. I know that you guys probably don't want a complete breakdown of it, so I'm not gonna go deep into the Greek, but I just want you to listen to a few of the other ways that this is presented in other translations of the Bible. Sometimes that's a helpful way to see the range of meaning in a word. This is other translations, faithful translations of the Bible. It sometimes is translated as the following graciousness, forbearance, forbearing spirit, gentleness, gentle spirit, moderation, modesty, fairness, friendliness, considerate, humility, gracious attitude, unselfishness. It's a lot of possible words to translate one word into. John MacArthur says that this word is really too grandiose to be understood by just one English word. So he likes to call it gracious humility. I love the way it's described in one lexicon. It says it this way. It says, the person who is described, uh, uh, it describes a person who does not always insist on every right of the letter of law or custom. It stands for the spirit or attitude that does not seek to retaliate. It denotes one's willingness to give and take instead of always standing rigidly on one's own rights. This is the kind of person who is yielding and is therefore gentle and kind and courteous and tolerant, or as one has described it, exhibits a sweet reasonableness or an ability to extend to another the kindly consideration that one would wish to receive themselves. The forbearing person is not spineless, but selfless. I love that. This single word encapsulates, I think, what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what this word means. This command that we be, let our reasonableness be made known to everyone has everything to do with being at peace with your circumstances. Particularly, it means that when others treat you poorly, you do not respond in kind. It means that when the world is falling apart around you, you are not devastated by that because you recognize who you are in light of a holy God. It means that you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. The best way to avoid conflict is to stop making yourself the measuring line for what is good or right or acceptable. Understand that you are a sinner who often falls short and that you have blind spots and you occasionally get things wrong. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him for you are worse than he thinks you to be. I love Spurgeon. He's great. He's just so good with words. Moreover, consider Jesus Christ who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. If Jesus could be falsely accused, if Jesus' experiences on this world were not warranted, if anybody was undeserving of that kind of suffering, it was him. Yet he experienced it, and he didn't open his mouth to complain. He recognized that his circumstances were divinely directed. Are you a selfless person? Are you known by everyone as someone who puts others before yourself? Or are you more defined as somebody who functions out of vain ambition and conceit? Are you easily offended by others when they don't respect you or recognize your achievements? Do you get frustrated with other people when they don't openly praise you and verbally encourage you constantly? Your gracious humility is not a suggestion. It is a command. And as Christians, we have no wiggle room here. You should be so humble that everyone can see it emanating from you. You guys have probably been at the store in the past and you've walked by that guy, usually a young man, who is wearing way too much body spray and it is just pulsing out of him like a cloud. It's, it's like that Peanuts character that has the cloud around him all the time. It's like that and you walk by and you just, you can't, I don't know, maybe it's just me, I can't breathe, I have to like literally move to another aisle It's like that. It's overpowering or overbearing in that manner, but in the opposite direction. It's pleasant when you encounter somebody who is humble. It is warm. Humility is so attractive to people, and it's supposed to be the defining characteristic of a Christian, that we are humble. Like I said earlier on in the sermon, this is not something that is a one-shot event. It is not a short dash. It is to be the consistent pattern of your everyday life. This is the struggle that you are going to continue to move more and more in the direction of obedience to Christ in this area. So application number five, grow in humility. Consider the third and final command from this section, beginning at verse five. It says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The final command is to not be anxious about anything. But these words are grounded in the imminence of Christ. It says, the Lord is at hand. Now this can mean one of two things. It can either mean that God is near, as in being nearby, or it could mean that the Lord's return is coming soon. Personally, I think that this is referring to the promise of Christ's return, but either way, what this means is that we can ground our comfort in the fact that God has not forgotten us. He is for us. Therefore, who can stand against us? Therefore, we are commanded to be anxious about nothing. Don't be anxious. Jesus is for you. Jesus is with you. Think about that. Now, we have a lot of um, people in this room who are not millennials, either because they are too old or too young. We have a lot of people in this room who are millennials. I found out recently that I fall into the category of millennial. Um, Did you know that millennials have been deemed by sociologists as the most anxious generation? I learned from an article on the New York Post called um, They Can't Even, Millennials and the Most Anxious Generation. According to reporting in Forbes, they estimate that 86% of my generation will need significant counseling because they expect that we will have what they call a severe quarter-life crisis. 
ironically, <laughs> our world is safer and faster and more technologically advanced than it has ever been in most ways. Yet, we still find excuses to feel anxious all the time. And I'm not just picking on millennials here. This is true of everybody in the room. And you know what? I can understand it. I get it for unbelievers. I get it for those who are not saved. If you do not believe in God, then it would make total sense to be anxious. Because if all you've got is this life and then you turn into dirt, you've got nothing. And your life, everything that you're working for can be ended in a moment. I don't know how people get out of bed if they don't believe in the Lord. I don't know how people drive cars knowing that if they crash and die, that's it. I don't know how people can have the confidence to try to make friends if they believe in survival of the fittest. It's just a dog-eat-dog world out there, and might makes right after all. Whoever is the biggest and strongest and loudest is going to rule the rest of us, and the rest of us should just run and hide shaking in our boots, right? That's, I don't know how people do it who don't know the Lord. And I understand why someone who denies the existence of a good God would have reason to worry and fear about everything. But there's no reason for you or I to worry. There is no reason for you or I to be anxious. Consider the words of Jesus. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. You don't have those things, you die. Try living outside without clothes. I mean, don't try it, but just imagine being in the winter here with no clothes. You're going to die. Food, water, you need those things. And he says, don't worry about that. In, in, a, in a world that he's writing to, where people are regularly at the end of their financial rope, he is talking to people who live in a land that often experiences drought, and he's talking to people who lived in a time where clothes were so expensive and incredibly hard to make, yet he says, don't worry about these things. Is Jesus being realistic here? He's trying to express to them that that's not the most central need of their lives, but God cares for us and he will provide for us. And he says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Your worry and your anxiety is nothing less than a slap in the face of God. Your attitude and actions reveal that you do not trust him and that you either think he's not sovereign and in control or you think that he's not good. You think that he's either unable to help you or that he doesn't love you enough to work all things out for you. Now, I don't think that any of us want to be anxious. I don't think anyone in here is just trying their best to stir up in, in themselves anxiety. I think most of us, if we had the choice, would say, man, I want that stuff gone. We're taught from a young age that worry is just part of the natural human experience. But I'm telling you from these verses that you must stand firm and not be anxious. How do we do that when we are in real dire circumstances? <laughs> Paul doesn't keep us in suspense. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. First, I want you to note the scope here. In everything, there is no struggle, there is no trial of life that is too big for God. So cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And how do we do that? Through prayer. The word prayer is just an overarching term for any kind of prayer, but supplication specifically deals with when you are asking God to help you with your needs. So when you have a legitimate need, what do you do? And you will have legitimate needs. What do you do? Do you complain? Do you tweet about it? Do you post a selfie of yourself looking depressed on Instagram? Do you go to your friends and do you talk about how the world is falling apart? Do you sit in your room and do you just stew to yourself about how this is the worst day of your life? Do you just complain to your spouse? What do you do when you experience legitimate need? 
If you're doing those things, you're moving in the wrong direction. What those things, I mean, what, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. So bring your request to God. Spurgeon puts it this way. No care, all prayer. It's so cheesy. I love it. Most of the time, we respond to the trials the exact same way the world does, which is a terrible thing. When we experience trials, we often just respond in our flesh like they do. We try to fix it on our own, or we have a bad attitude. We don't go to the only person in the universe who has power over it. So like the old song says, take everything to him in prayer. When I was first working on this text a couple years ago, I received a phone call from my middle school youth pastor. And uh, I really love him. I have some disagreements about him, uh, with him on a few issues of theology, but I really believe he loves the Lord and he knows the Lord well. And he has five kids. And at that point, he had just been diagnosed with a severe form of cancer. And they were looking at uh, what they were going to need to do in terms of surgeries. And as I spoke with him, he talked about the possibility of losing his life and leaving his family behind. And he was really filled with sorrow at the idea of passing, but he said, it really isn't a question of life and death. It's a question of heaven or earth. This is a man who knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's going to live for Christ now. It's just a matter of location. Is it going to be here or there? Thankfully, the Lord brought him through that trial, but that's the kind of joy that you can see and a settled confidence in Christ where where this man had every reason for anxiety from a worldly perspective, where he could lose literally everything. Instead, he said, I know God's got this in his hand and it doesn't matter where I am, I'm going to be with him. Application number six, pray with thanksgiving about everything. If there's anything in your life that is leading you to feel anxious, if there's anything that is rattling you in your emotions, if there's anything that you feel is beating you down, what do you do? Just take it to the Lord. Allow me to close by considering our final verse. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All morning, we've been talking about peace, being at peace with one another, being at peace with your circumstances. But what is the source of peace? It is from God. The peace of God originates and it emanates from him. There's no other source of peace. So if you're seeking to be comforted or uplifted by some other means, you're just going to be greatly disappointed. But when you pray with thanksgiving, rejoicing in the Lord, there's a promise for you. And it's not that God is going to give you whatever you pray about. In fact, this verse doesn't ever even say how God's going to answer you. There's no promise that he will say yes to your request. It's simply that in the midst of your trial, you are going to experience a deep and real peace that comes from God that is unexplained by anything in this world. It is beyond your comprehension and the comprehension of anyone else. No doctor or psychologist or drug could give the kind of comfort, comfort that God gives when we pray. And this kind of peace is not just some feeling or emotion. It is a gift from God that will, quote, guard our hearts and our minds. Here's a final word, a military term for the day. God's peace will guard your heart and mind. A guard's sole duty is protecting someone or something. Specifically, this word is like a sentry who stands there on guard at the door so that nobody can come in or out without his control. And God has given us a genuine, indescribable peace to serve as a guard over our heart 
and over our mind. You say that I'm anxious. I just keep thinking about the same problems over and over and over. Go to the Lord with thanksgiving, not just requests, but with thanksgiving, giving thanks for all that God has done for you. And there's a promise that peace will guard your heart and guard your mind and watch those thoughts that are coming in and out and watch those things that are going on in your emotions. So what do we do? Like Paul says, we stand firm, my brothers and sisters, stand firm by seeking peace with one another and stand firm by seeking peace in all circumstances because of Christ and because of what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that because of your son, we can be at peace with you. And because of your son, we can be at peace with one another. And because of your son, we can even be at peace within ourselves when things around us become so difficult that we don't know how we can bear it. Lord, I pray for every person in here who is struggling to get along with another individual, that you would give them the grace to develop a peaceable unity between them. And I pray for every single person here who is experiencing circumstances that are just flooding them with trials. Lord, I pray for them that they would be at peace even though their world around them is rattled, but that they would have a steady confidence standing on Christ, the solid rock. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.